Welcome to Changing Places, the podcast that believes places are powerful agents of positive social transformation. Each episode, Dean Keith Diaz-Moore from the University of Utah's College of Architecture and Planning will take you behind the teaching, research, and practice at the leading edge of innovation occurring in our college. Through informal conversations, you will learn the emerging issues, why you should care, and what you can do about them to change our world for the better. Welcome to Changing Places, a periodic podcast focused on how the places we create are agents for transformative social change. I'm your host, Keith Diaz-Moore. Today, we're joined by Lisa Henry, Associate Professor and Chair of the School of Architecture at the University of Utah. Lisa is a recognized leader in the intersection of race, gender, and architecture, and leveraged that unique expertise in shaping some important initiatives at the School of Architecture over the past few years. With the social reckoning arising from the murder of George Floyd in the spring of 2020, the timeliness of this topic could not be greater. We were so fortunate to have her as our leader during this turbulent time. Today, we will discuss a number of recent action items from the University of Utah School of Architecture that took in relation to racial justice, including being a founding partner in Dark Matter University and our Utah anti-racism agenda. Lisa, welcome. Thank you, Keith. First, and this might be a little hard, but let's go back to the days immediately after the George Floyd murder uh, last spring and discuss how, uh, while other programs you know, were wrestling with issuing statements on, on behalf of that, you led the School of Architecture to take some concrete, immediate actions captured in the Utah anti-racism agenda. Let's go to ground zero, and would you share how, as an African-American woman, you felt in June 2020 after the Floyd murder and how that impacted your reaction to take action? Well, I'll say as an African-American woman and as a queer person, I feel it very strongly when I see brutality rooted in any form of identity. I always have a reaction that's immediate and visceral and feels almost like physical pain. And I think that it just it's because it connects to the injustices I've witnessed and experienced growing up as a mixed-race child in the South. It connects to the experience of my family and the pain and senselessness of violence with no real recourse or logic. And I see this in my family members. You know, when you've been judged your entire life based on the color of your skin, based on your sexuality or your gender, it really has an accumulating impact. So every time you witness that kind of brutality, you feel the accumulation of that pain and of the pain of just living in this country as a black person. It is very heavy and exhausting. And I'll tell you, on this particular occasion, my reaction was complicated by my daughter's reaction. Mm -hmm. um, I remember taking a walk in the avenues during the time when we were having protests and curfews in Salt Lake City and me and my daughter were talking about the situation, and I saw my daughter realize that the color of my skin implicated me in this world, and I saw her fear develop. I saw for a moment in her eyes this fear, and it was so painful to see that, and I think it made this particular conflict or instance particularly painful for me and particularly emotional. I mean, that's a horrible thing to see your daughter realize that she's living in an unjust world and it's going to have an impact on her. Absolutely. Based on that powerful response, 
while other programs around the country would spend weeks to, you know, try and craft the right statement, uh, if you will, you led the School of Architecture and subsequently the college in shaping, you know, a really progressive agenda, what we ended up calling the Utah anti-racism agenda. Why, why do you think the School of Architecture, under your leadership, was ready to take what was really a bold step and assert a leadership role in the nation on this point? Well, I think that our community became incredibly hunger, hungry, hungry for action, hungry to make change. I think people realized for the first time in their lives that this is an issue that impacts everyone, not just those who are marked by particular identities. I think that there was a sort of recognition that because I was in this position that we had an opportunity to, to really take some bold steps. While I had faculty and students reaching out to me for guidance and reaching out to me and even practitioners in the, in the local community reaching out to me, I also um, really wanted to respect everyone in the community. And I think one of the things I did, which was one of the most effective things, was I kind of took myself out of the process as a primary author. Interesting. Um, even though I've studied these issues for years, even though I have a particular passion for it, I felt like it was really critical that my faculty and my students and this community be the ones to take ownership. And so I turned to my faculty for help in writing the statement. I started with two volunteers who wrote an, an initial draft, and then we quickly distributed it to the entire faculty for a co-writing process. We've had a couple of co-writing processes in the last few years, so this was a familiar process for everyone. Because everyone was able to contribute, because everyone was able to have voice, we came to a consensus really quickly. And I think part of that was just that my presence inspired a sense of confidence in people engaging with the issue, but also by taking myself out as primary author, people really felt like they could take ownership of that text and they could edit it freely and, and, um, and really engage in the process. So I think that those two things really worked incredibly well. And I would say also through my connection with Dark Matter University and Design as Protest, which are two networks of black, indigenous, and uh, people of color, architects, faculty, students, and practitioners. Because my connection to that, that network, I had access to multiple sets of demands that were written by faculty and students of color. So when, I, when we went to the, after we made the statement, when we went to the phase of developing initiatives that we wanted to move on, we had the advantage of being able to, to, to draw those initiatives from the perspective of faculty and students of color who've been struggling with these issues for a long time, rather than focusing on the perspective of the institution. And I think that's what made the agenda so groundbreaking and really allowed us to think outside of ourselves, right? I mean, we went to people who are experts at being, student, at being students of color and in institutions dominated by whiteness. We went to people who are experts at being faculty of color and being practitioners of color in a field that's dominated by whiteness. And so that gave us a really different perspective on what the changes, what changes we wanted to make and what were the real needs of those people who, who are struggling in that space. Right, right. So it's really interesting um, what you bring up in terms of what seemed to be a really thoughtful choreography of, of leadership in terms of, you know, how to how to raise the issue, as you mentioned, kind of stepping back, 
uh, from a lead uh, authorship role, but also having that expertise to to um, to give to the to the process. How did you navigate that? Was just that based on on feel of the situation, or how did you come up with a process that, as you said, really resulted in something pretty groundbreaking? Yeah, I, I think it was it was uh, it was based on a feeling. I, you know, I've been teaching gender, race, and queer theory and architecture for years and years, and I have learned a lot from trying to teach those issues to people who are not necessarily focused on those issues. One of the things that I learn um, and that I that I am struggling with constantly is this idea of a kind of the how my experience as someone who holds a position of a black woman, of a queer black woman, because I have so much experience in that space, if I speak first, my students don't speak. So we lose that opportunity for a collective response, right, or a collective creation of knowledge. Right. And so it was really through my training in feminist pedagogy and my experience with people tending to be shy or tending to step back when someone of color speaks about a racial issue that led me to um, the conclusion that I really needed to both be present and be a leader and bring all of my experience to the text, but at the same time not be a first author or primary author because otherwise my faculty and my community would feel like it, that I was imposing on them rather than representing them in the, in the best way that I could in this space. Right. And right. I think also my emotions, right? I was dealing with my daughter sure, um, and her very real fear for the first time. And I was really emotionally overwrought. And so there was a moment, you know, there was a first moment when I sat down and said, I've got to do something. And I looked at my blank piece of paper and was like, oh, my God, that's terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> right. So there was a little bit of instinct and, and feeling involved, but there was also um, years of experience that I was also trying on in terms of trying to engage people on these issues and allowing them to feel like they have a voice, even if they don't hold one of the identities that we're speaking about. Clearly, it worked, and I, you know, I, my, as I said in the introduction, I think you were the the right person at the right time. So I think we just, through fortune, lucked out in that way. But let's turn to one specific action item uh, of the past year in which you were intimately involved in making happen uh, on the national scene, the innovative dark matter university and our school of architecture's role in it. So what is Dark Matter University, and how did the U of U architecture students participate in this inaugural year? Dark Matter University, as I said before, is a network of Black, Indigenous, and people of color architects and scholars throughout the United States. I'm a core member of this network. I was one of the founding members of this particular initiative. Um, DMU is focused on rethinking how we educate architects and um, developing models for bringing Black and Indigenous scholars into the field, into educational opportunities, both as students and as faculty. This is also done through a process of mentoring, co-writing, co-teaching. So we're taking people who have a lot of experience in the field and pairing them with people who have little experience in order to develop not only a kind of peer-reviewed and co-writing process, but also to, to sort of teach them how to teach and to give them the skills that they would need to enter into the educational um, field in architecture. We're also aiming to disrupt the boundaries of architectural institutions and, frankly, of the architectural field to create a more envi uh, inclusive environment for 
students and faculty and practitioners of color who are trying to really facilitate real change in the field. This first year, we've really focused on developing a series of courses that were offered at multiple institutions. We have both studio courses and seminar courses that we developed. Mm -hmm. The course that we offered at the University of Utah is an excellent example and is, is really a sort of flagship course for the DMU at this moment. It's called the Foundations of Design Justice. It was developed by the network through a collaborative process, taking advantage of many different perspectives and many different knowledge bases. And we also, as part of the philosophy of the course and as part of the, our idea of the sort of new ways of creating knowledge and collective ways of creating knowledge, we allowed for the students to contribute to the curriculum as co-authors. Interesting. So the final syllabus was not finished until the end of the semester. Mm -hmm. And the author, all of the people ascribed as authors include network people, include the people who actually taught, include administrators that facilitated the courses and included the students that took the courses. So we all have some experience in developing curriculum and developing ways of thinking about these issues together. And I think that makes it really powerful. Again, not a top-down model, but a collective model. So for this particular course, um, we developed modules that focused on um, design justice, community power, workforce development, and affordable housing. The course was taught at six institutions, generally pairing a sort of traditional architectural institution with historically black college or university mm -hmm. so that both sets of students are really getting different perspectives and different experiences in that classroom. This year, University of Utah paired with Florida A&M University. We had guest speakers every week of the semester, mostly generally involving at least two or more guest speakers. All of our guest speakers were BIPOC, black, indigenous, or people of color. And the model that we used was more discussion workshop model than lecture model so that everyone is participating. And basically, we brought practitioners, teachers, recent graduates um, into the classroom and allowed these people to bring their entire background and their entire inspiration into that space of the classroom to really expand what we think about when we think about educating architects and allow the students to really see a broad range of how to practice architecture with a design justice lens and not just one way or um, perspective. That's that's absolutely fascinating. Now, I know the Utah School of Architecture will continue to be a partner uh, in Dark Matter University. U upon reflection, what do you think were the, you know, the, the, the gains, if you will, or, or what were the outcomes of this first go around? And what are your hopes for it in, over the coming years? Yeah, I feel like we learned a lot. We had, I think we developed some incredible courses and some incredible reference databases that our students have access to and that our network has access to. I think really diversifying the field and diversifying the scope of how the field understands itself is really critical. We learned also that there are some really interesting and different dynamics in that classroom when we have one group of students from a from a traditionally black university mm -hmm. and one group of students from a public university in Utah, which is a fairly homogenous community, right? Right. Um, we have such different experiences and such different cultures. So the University of Utah has different grading culture, different cultures in terms of how much reading or how much assignment than Florida AMU and 
so mediating and mitigating all of that became one of the, is one of the lessons, right? And I think this is important. This is an important lesson for everyone in that space, whether it's students or faculty or practitioners, because these are the same lessons that are going to facilitate broader community engagement in architecture, right? right? And so the idea is, as we continue to learn and facilitate these processes, we can begin to publish our findings, publish new methods and new ways of thinking about engaging a broad, diverse audience in a conversation that could really open up the field and bring more voices to the table and amplify different voices. I think we will continue to develop additional courses. We want to, most of the courses that we've developed so far are entry-level courses. So we want to continue and develop some more advanced courses that will go more in-depth into particular issues Mm -hmm. and allow students to begin to really express their interests as they choose classes and choose issues to, to work with. Um, and I think that's really important to diversifying the fields, right? Diversifying, making more students feel welcome by giving them space to bring their experience to the table, bring their passion into their practice of architecture. Right? I mean, I right. know I work better when I bring all of my passion and all of myself to whatever I'm working on. And that's the kind of space we want to provide for students so that we can really have a diverse community of architects and a much more diverse field. So that those are the, some of the things that we're aiming to do, as well as continuing to sort of break down institutional barriers and really transform the way universities work. Uh, universities are like these large institutions that work, that tend to move slow. Absolutely. Right, and tend to <laughs> value their own perspective. <laughs> right. So we're trying to break down some of that as well with the way that we're working and really show that you can't, it's no longer viable to say we couldn't find BIPOC. We couldn't find someone who's qualified to teach who's BIPOC. So we went with the normal standards. Right. Or we couldn't find an article on uh, from the perspective of design justice. So we went with normal standards. We're building knowledge. We're disseminating knowledge and we're broadening the field so that everybody who wants to engage in these issues can engage in these issues in a way that's substantive and transformative. Right. Well, and I think I'm going to focus on that word right there. I mean, clearly the initiative is is about transformation, not only of architectural education, but also, you know, subsequently of the profession. And I guess I'd like to ask you um, for on behalf of our listeners. So, because it seems as though there may be historic or traditional aspects of architectural education that perhaps have have proven to be barriers to an inclusive learning culture. And I'm wondering if you might reflect on that for a moment. Yeah, the way I understand it is that we define our field very narrowly. When we teach architecture, we tend to teach with an eye to a particular kind of practice which is kind of a standard corporate model of practice that's about delivering buildings to particular clients, right? Right. This is a very narrow definition of architecture and what architecture can do. And we see this, you know, we have had African-American scholars like Sharon Sutton, for example, talk about this. It's precisely that narrowness that makes it really difficult to have an inclusive discipline, right? Right. So if we can open up that narrowness, whether it's about 
the processes of architecture, whether it's about the types of knowledge that we include in architectural practice. For example, Western architectural education tends to dismiss indigenous forms of knowledge that may deal with sustainability or transient forms of making that may deal with sustainability in different ways. We tend to focus on Western scientific rational thinking, right? Right. So if we can start to build into our discipline respect for multiple knowledges, if we can start to build into our discipline respect for different understandings of what beauty is or what architecture Mm -hmm. is, right? If we can build into our discipline different models of property ownership, different models of of economical, uh, sorry, ecological knowledge, we can actually welcome many more people, right? We can invite people in and say, we want you to bring your knowledge. We want you to bring your experience. We want you to bring what you know, because all of these things enrich our field rather than saying our field is defined very narrowly. If you don't conform to our narrow standards of what an architect is or what an, what a work of architecture is, then you're really not welcome here. We are always going to be marginal if we define our field in that way. Right. If you think about medicine or other professions, you get a degree in medicine and you're a doctor and you can take that degree and you can work anywhere from public health to family practice to research. And you're considered a doctor in all of those spaces. But in architecture, there are many people who don't consider you an architecture with a capital A unless you are practicing in a corporate model. Right. And that's what makes our field unwelcoming to people who are interested in design justice, to people who are interested in community development or workforce development or all the other things that we touch on, whether we like whether we like to admit it or not. And so I think if we can define our field as broadly as possible, the field will be much more relevant to many more people and it'll be much more welcoming to many more people. That aspiring message of inclusion is just so beautifully stated, Lisa. Thank you for that today. So believe it or not, we're, we're running out of time, so I'm going to ask you a last question. As you know, our college is the first architecture and planning college in the nation to espouse what we've called an ethic of care to underlie our professional education. So why do you care, and why do you think others should care, about this intersectionality of, of race, identity, and architecture? Well, I think architecture is a form of culture. Architecture is a materialization of culture. And in that sense, architects have a responsibility to all of the cultures that make up the great diversity of our communities. And so for me, architects need to care and should care precisely because we are, not only do we have this incredible training that teaches us how to think critically and creatively about mm-hmm. very complex issues, right? Right. We have a responsibility to take that training and apply it to these to the burning issues of our time. And that includes race, that includes gender, that includes ability, that includes indigeneity. Um, it includes all of those identity markers that have led to oppression in the past, right? Right. And I think in addition, architects as professionals have a voice at the table. And it is our responsibility to take that voice and use it to amplify the voices of others 
it's our responsibility to take that voice and use it to open the doors to those who are coming behind us. And so I think it's, it's, we, we should all care, but we should all understand that with the skills and the incredible training that we have and with the privilege and the location that we have at the table, we absolutely have a responsibility to go beyond corporate practice and think about how architecture impacts the everyday lives of every single person in the communities that we work in. Wow, Lisa, that was very powerfully stated. I so appreciate you joining us today. It's really been fascinating and, let me tell you, very inspirational. Lisa Henry is an associate professor in the School of Architecture at the University of Utah. If you found this work interesting, you can find out more by visiting www.cap.utah.edu. I'd like to end by thanking our listeners for taking the time to join us and for spreading the word using the hashtag Changing Places. On behalf of the Changing Places podcast, hosted by the College of Architecture and Planning at the University of Utah, I am Dean Keith Diazmore. Take care, everyone. Thank you.